adult education is such junk. The professors are so phony. How can you do it? I don't care what you say about David. He's a perfectly David. fine David. teacher. David. And what are you doing following me around for anyway? I'm following I you and David. If this relationship quick. That's fine. That's fine. That's great. Well, I don't know what I did wrong. I mean, I can't believe this. Somewhere she cooled off to me. Is, is, is it something that I did? Never something you do. That's how people are. Love fades. Love fades. God, that's a depressing thought. I, I, I have to ask you a question. Don't go any further. With your wife in bed, does she need some kind of artificial stimulation like, like marijuana? We use a large vibrating egg. A large vibrating egg. Well, I ask a psychopath, I get that kind of an answer. Jesus. I, I, here, you, you look like a very happy couple. Um, are you? Yeah. Yeah. So, so how, how do you account for it? Uh, I'm very shallow and empty, and I have no ideas and nothing interesting to say. And I'm exactly the same way. Episode 87 of the Cult of Matt and Mark Cult Film Review Podcast. I'm Matt. And I'm Mark. And make sure to visit our blog at cultfilmreview.blogspot.com or shoot us an email at cultfilmreview at gmail.com. And make sure to head over to Mask Books, M-A-S-Q-U-E, for news of my upcoming novel, Nova Byzantium, coming out in November now, I think. So there's that. Also, a shout-out to a fan of the show, our friend Ben in New York City. Just had a little girl. Uh... Beatrix, and I'm going to fuck up the middle name. I want to say, like, Minoloxidin, Lydian, Mino... Uh, did you did you check out the middle name? I got it up here. Uh, I, I did up. see it. I thought maybe it was a family name. I'm not familiar with it. Is it maybe... Is it a reference to uh, some piece of literature? It's Arcana. I had to look it up on the old Google. It's a ancient Greek harmonic melody or something like that. It's Mixolydian. It's a weird thing where... Everybody used to have kids in their 20s. Now everybody's having kids in their late 30s. Yeah, I know. Because uh, there's Ben, who had uh, his first, and he's like 39, I guess, because he's a year younger than me, I believe. Then there's Scott. Had a little oh, that's boy. right. I totally forgot about that. They're having a child as well, or did they have They already one? had one, yeah. She was when born, was that? Or he was born 10 years, 10 years, 10 days before uh, Miriam. Uh, Elias, oh, well, I- little Elias. What he never posted anything on Facebook about it? Oh no, man! He's 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 a Google Plus guy. He has some sort of uh, uh, he's a one man crusade against Facebook. Oh my God. Now, which... I, now I got to buy two more baby gifts. So I finally <laughs> got, I finally got your baby gift. Bob. Oh, you did. It's oh. here 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 at the house. Good because you need now to... I can officially come by and see the baby. Yeah, you need to come by and see the kid before she graduates from college. That'll be cool. <laughs> All right. Well, enough of the baby crap. The Internet's polluted with it. So uh, on to the movie this week, which uh, is the 1977 Woody Allen classic Annie Hall. Uh, Plot rundown. Uh, Jewish comedy writer Alvy Singer, played by Woody Allen, ponders the modern quest for love and his past romance with tightly wound wasp singer Annie Hall, played by Diane Keaton. The twice-divorced Alvy knows that it's not easy to find a mate when the options include pretentious New York intellectuals and lifestyle-obsessed Rolling Stone writers, but a lottie dying Annie seems different. Along the rocky road after their coupling, Alan, Al- Alan Alvey, or Woody Allen, played by... Never mind. That just didn't make sense. Weigh in on such topics, topics as endless therapy movies, 
versus TV, the absurdity of dating rituals, anti-Semitism, drugs, and in one of the best set pieces, repressed Midwestern wasp, insanity versus crazy Brooklyn Jewish boisterousness. And he wants to move to Los Angeles to find that fame that finally does in the relationship, but not before Alvy gets in a few digs at vacuous mantra fixated California. Sorry, that was a little bit uh, syllabic. That was that the whole thing. Yeah, that's it. Yeah. Well, it's not too long. One thing that's sort of confusing me about this movie is Alvy's been married twice. Yeah, uh, he's forty. And he's, he's forty in this film. Then how old is Annie supposed to be? Good question. And why hasn't she been married? Is she supposed to be younger than him? What I would you peg her be. at? I don't know how old Diane Keaton was at the time. Uh, I don't know how old Diane Keaton was, but she certainly looked like she was supposed to be 30 or something. But it is sort of strange that she, she she's never been married, but she does talk about previous lovers. I, I, I'd say 32. It seems like a good solid age. It's interesting home. that Woody Allen chose Alvy to be twice divorced. Yeah, no. It seems interesting. I mean, I'm surprised he didn't play it off as both of the characters are a bit younger uh, and that uh, it was just two serious relationships instead of marriages. But Well, you know, I, I don't know how autobiographical this is, and we all know Woody's uh, sordid relationship history. Was he, was he before uh, he married uh, Mia Farrow? And then they then he married their adopted daughter, <laughs> correct? Yes. Yeah, was he married a couple times? Because because he was I don't even know if he was married to Mia Farrow when he made this movie in seventy seven. Uh, I, I been, think I him know. and Diane. This is a like him and Diane Keaton dated, and this is semi autobiographical about that. I believe I'm not sure. Uh, okay, I don't know if Woody Allen was married before um, all of this. Anyway, so I have no idea. I don't know anything. I don't either. Uh, I'm I'm assuming that he uh, bopped around a bit. Uh, he's neurotic mm. enough that uh, I doubt if he settled early. So, uh, but yeah, she was married twice in this, and you see little snippets of the flashback sequences where he's married to, and I forget the actress's name. Carol Carol Kane was his first wife, Alice. Right, and then there is the other gal that you don't get that you don't see much of, and then he twice divorced, and now he's dating again at the age of forty. Uh, I'm forty. You're almost forty. Uh, it's sort of interesting to think about. I guess a man who's dating, uh, who seems so relationship obsessed at the age of 40. I mean, you know, I'm married, you're more or less common law married. And like he, he still has that early 20s motor going. Well, as he says, he's always been obsessed with women and sex. And that even when he was uh, like eight years old, he couldn't yeah. keep his hands off the ladies. So, I, I mean, maybe he's supposed to be a... A person is this supposed to be a tale of a dysfunctional man, or is this supposed to be a common tale of love in your mid middle ages? I'm not sure. <laughs> well, it's a romantic comedy first and foremost, which falls into a huge genre of film of the romantic comedy. Although it ends in a way that's not typical of most romantic comedies, where they end up together. You know, there's the falling out, and then they get back together. This ends with sort of more reality injected into it. So, you know, I was trying to. I guess, psychoanalyze Woody, which is probably impossible, uh, but fun to do nonetheless, especially in the context of one's own personal uh, relationship history. And, you know, it's interesting what I got from it, at least what I got from, you know, if I was to, I guess, uh, diagnose, is that he never gets past that hypersexualized romantic honeymoon phase of the relationship, kind of the... Uh, the 
never gets into the day-to-day element. Well, it is sort of an interesting look at it. Is And I think it's a way maybe a lot of people live is that they don't make that commitment to one person. And it's sort of a it's sort of a strange commitment to make, but uh, it's sort of um, it's almost like a promise because we're promise keepers. <laughs> yeah, that's right. Well, that's that's uh, just a personal note. Mark and I attend promise keeper rallies almost on a <laughs> monthly basis, flying all over the country. And you got to think that Alvy, in this case, and this is maybe why Woody Allen wrote him to be twice divorced, is that he's gone. He's tried this commitment route thing before twice yeah and he hasn't been able to get past the honeymoon phase either time so maybe he's just um decided that you know he's had enough success in life and he can he doesn't he doesn't need to get married or live together for economic reasons so he's just going to go have a series of relationships through his life you see some you know actory types uh do this and they just sort of they have a new relationship every couple of years Right. And they fall freshly in love over and over again. I think it's just a way that some people decide to live their life. And maybe, in a sense, this is a little this is a little sad, the story, because if you had been able to pull that commitment trigger the third time, you have a feeling like it could have worked out between him and Annie long-term, where they could grow old together. But uh, I think he'd been burned already, and he decided his life is going to be just a series of romances. Well, he proposes marriage to her at the end. But they both grown apart at this. Yeah, and time. it's insincere. He proposes marriage on his terms. In no way does he, is he ever interested in compromising. He doesn't want to move out to New York. I mean, New York's more important to him than Annie. Yeah. At all parts, no matter how miserable he is. Nineteen seventy-seven New York, which was a f- like rat-infested shithole of grinding recession and uh, massive crime and son of Sam business going on and. <laughs> I don't know. Late 70s New York sounds just like horrible. But, uh, uh, you know, I guess it's timeless in a sense. And so Woody Allen is definitely a creature of New York and I think is almost defined by New York. I think in a way he is. And maybe he's the type of person that would be defined by wherever he he would have grown up. I mean, the Alvy character. Perhaps if he was born in uh, Grand Rapids, he would have been stuck there, too. Uh, He's a little bit of a homebody. Yeah, I guess, but uh, he definitely needs a what's that intellectual, academic, uh, cultural bulwark to maintain this personality, which sort of makes him a creature of New York and why L.A. is so distasteful to him. Uh, he just, <laughs> it's it's a contradiction. He doesn't understand it at all, which is sort of funny, and he digs at it a lot in the movie. I guess I can't feel for him. I mean, if I had to choose between living in L.A. in 77 and living in New York in 77, there'd be no choice. I'd be in L.A. Yeah, I'd be in I L.A. Mean, now, it'd, man. It'd, it'd, it'd just be, <laughs> me too. God damn, here comes fall. I need to get out of this goddamn state. I don't know. To me, New York and New Yorkers, and it uh, seems a bit of cognitive dissonance going on. Uh, with with the inhabitants of that city. I haven't really explored it. You've been there more than I have. For starters, it kind of looks like every other city in the U.S., and I know, you know, it has its icons and it's, you know, uh, but it does. It doesn't, like, uh, certain cities in the U.S. do look completely different than other ones, which gives them their charm. Uh, Like, I like Santa Fe, New Mexico, uh, San Francisco. uh, You know, I could name some more. But, you know, like, that sort of, the downtown, midtown Manhattan look, that can be, it's sort of reproduced in almost every city. 
And sort of the cultural memes of New York, like pizza and bagels and uh, shit, you know, I don't know what else, delicatessens. It's not enough, really. To, 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 it's not enough of a sell. And for I you. Guess, for me. Uh, but for other people, it's a big sell. I mean, it draws people to it. Some people just like the, the environment. I think the not having a car thing is nice for a lot of people. They really enjoy being able to mass transit and, and walkability, which you don't get in a lot of other cities. And uh, That's true. And unlike L.A., yeah, you know, 20 minutes gets you out into the woods of New Jersey or Connecticut, where 20 minutes in downtown L.A. gets you into L.A. Traffic, <laughs> you know I mean? yeah. <laughs> so, I mean, there's something to be said about that, and I think a lot of people li- like that, even though the cost of living is so high in New York. Uh, so back to, uh, like, kind of Woody's, I guess, relationship model in, in, at this point in his life. You know, I, I kind of think, like, I, I have I have a neighbor, and he's probably, like, 45, uh, he's going to be a perma bachelor. You can sort of tell. I don't know if he was married previously, but you know he has like a girlfriend that does the sleepover thing, and they've been doing that since we moved here, like three and a half years. And I don't know. Maybe it's because I'm married now, and like relationships always kind of move forward for me, or that's the goal is to kind of move them forward. But I can just like it almost has a shelf life stamped on that relationship, like. You know, there's going to be a point where you have to move at least in together, you know, to to create some sort of stability. But, yeah, there's no interest. And so you can tell that it's, like, going to be over soon uh, Mm because nothing's moving forward. Well, I think that's how Alvy's planning on living his life. You just sort of go through these relationships every couple of years. I know, but there's so much fucking work, man. I, that's the maybe thing. maybe that's the that work is part of the joy the finding and falling in love and the wooing and the getting uh, it does seem like a, a whole lot of work but uh i think alvy likes that uh i have a friend who shall remain nameless but uh he is uh, he's 30 so he's younger uh he he gets a lot of tail i mean he he doesn't have any problem attracting the females and so, but he always does this thing. He'll have like a year long relationship. He never goes past a year. And then like they break up and then he always does this. Every single one of his girlfriends, like he ends up sleeping with her again, like two to three months later for like a month or so, every single relationship. And just that kind of sad, broken up sex, just, it seems so depressing to me that I don't know. I just... I mean, I guess if I was having it consistently, it wouldn't be that big of a deal. <laughs> I don't know. It just seems like a lot of work, man, like a lot of emotional strain and, you know, manipulation and just I think some that. people are just enjoy that process. They get a lot of enjoyment out of the just the fun interplay of the romantic relationships more so than you or I are interested. I think I that know. some people just get more of a kick out of it. And so they're more inclined to do it. Relationships, I always have way too many chips in the kitty to just kind of, you know, fold and go to the next hand. It's just, I don't know. So I guess I don't, it, it just, they've always been work for me. And yeah, uh, and they're not and, as much work for other people. And definitely not for, for Alvy in this movie. He, 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 he gets a lot of tail, even though he's a uh, wiry unattractive looking Jewish guy in Manhattan. He is, he, every chick he's with is, is uh pretty hot seventies hot in this film. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Know. Even Shelly Duvall. Yeah. Shelly Duvall. She, she's she got this had, weird skinny look. That's pretty cute. She, well, she always looks high. 
Shelly Duvall mm-hmm. always has that kind of like she just did a bong rip and uh, <laughs> yeah, so you get that in here. She's just kind of some crunchy half groupie that he hooks up with. Oh man, it's so funny with. that scene where they're sitting in bed. He he and uh, Shelly Duvall are sitting in bed post coitus. And he's like rubbing his jaw because he had to give Cunnilingus. Oh, I know, so yeah, 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 yeah. Orgasm. Yeah, sorry, it took so long. That's so funny. He's like, oh, the feeling is coming back. And then she says, you, after he makes a couple of sort of morose comments, she goes, "Your lovemaking is so Kafka esque." And then she says, "That's a compliment," <laughs> <laughs> which is, I, it can't possibly be Kafka, you know, a compliment what, of any kind. What exactly? What exactly? How how could you make love in a Kafka way? To me, like a Kafka sexual experience would be if I was like going at it and then there was two guys standing off to the side of the bed in suits, like mildly snickering to each other. That would be Kafka esque. You think but so? You know only- what I think it I think it reminds me of last week's movie where you had the uh the seductresses. They were sort of oh, level three bureaucratic lovemakers, you know? It's yeah. almost like the government assigned you somebody to have sex with you that night. That's it. Yeah, that's Kafka esque. I'm with you. Right. Yeah, so okay. it could be hot. <laughs> I guess. Oh, you know, the comedy in this movie, I forget Woody Allen is a stand-up comic before. He... I've always meant to go get some of his old albums. I heard they're really great. But, well, uh... you see a bit of his stand-up act when he's mm-hmm. doing the uh, Wisconsin uh, bit there. And you kind of pick up, I mean, it, you see a lot of it in the movie because you figure that he probably worked a lot of his stand-up routine in the movie which is pretty common amongst uh, comedians well he does uh, break the you know the old fourth wall quite a bit in this movie yeah in camera. a delicious way very, very spectacular with uh oh the scene where he's in the line and he has such a disdain for pretentious egoed uh, intellectuals yeah uh, he is that, sort of one himself which is is, sort of is funny himself. Yeah, because yeah, I'm like that. That's part of the humor. That's part of I the kept humor. watching this movie thinking that uh, I, I, I would, I have like the personality of a New York Jew in a big white waspy body. Like I can, like the whole obsessed with death, uh, never allow oneself happiness or pleasure. Uh, constant, you know. If there's, I've always got something constant I can worry about. Uh, I just told, that's why I love this movie because I just see myself, parts of myself in Woody's worldview. <laughs> it's like undeniable. You know, I was listening to Woody Allen's speech patterns during this movie and it reminds me a lot of, I spent a lot of time listening to our speech patterns when I edit the podcast, going over and removing some sounds. And it's strange how, much similar, especially your speech patterns are to Woody Allen's, and I don't mean that <laughs> your 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 quips are as biting. And, I'll take that uh, as a compliment. I mean, obviously, yeah, this stuff ahead. is written, yeah. but the, there's a lot of we ha- we tend to smack our lips, yeah, and we does. tend to say you know, you know, and I'm always removing those from the podcast. For some reason, it, it really annoys me uh, when people use that too much. But strangely enough. That is exactly how Woody Allen speaks. There's says, lots you know of you knows and there's lots of lip smacking. Oh. I just wonder if Woody Allen's speech patterns affected just sort of common uh, sort of English language use in the Americas. I, I just wonder how much his speech patterns, because they're so, everybody knows Woody Allen's 
cadence in some of the, the, the choices of words he uses that I wonder if it's changed in a measurable no. way the spoken English language over the last 40 years. I think it may no, have. No, Because there's a lot of those clues in our... In our in our speech patterns, and I just I just wonder what influence. I mean, it must happen. I mean, language changes over time, and it can change quite a bit over just a couple of generations. And you got to imagine in this era of massly distributed recorded speech that these changes must be pushed. I mean, they have to be pushed by famous speakers, and Woody Allen's certainly one of the most famous speakers in American English over the last forty years, right? Yeah, but he's not that ubiquitous. He's not like Johnny Carson or something that was on TV for 40 years. Uh, he's a he's a niche audience. He doesn't have a huge audience. He has a huge fan base, but it's it's a niche. So I would say it's just representative of some quirk in American. Well, I think it's weird that we would have politics. similar speech patterns to him since he grew up on uh, the other side of the country. Well, we're both a little neurotic and... Uh, I don't know. Don't have that New York sensibility, but we're definitely, uh, what's the right word? Self-deprecating. Uh, mm. I have a huge disdain for everybody he pokes fun of, which is awesome in this movie. I, I always hate folks that make apologies for everybody. Oh, I, I don't know what to call them. And you do this. You do this. I always take the opposite point of view just to be a, yeah. just to be a, a dick. Yeah, yeah, I'm going to pick a bone with you, but I just I, I really get into just uh, creatively skewering people by first throwing them into a stereotypical bin, and then once they're in that bin, throwing rocks at them until I'm through with them. And uh, I know you kind of defend those. Oh, you don't know where they're coming from, and and you, and then I always want to come back and he's like, man, don't defend people you've never met. I'm riffing on this guy. You just sit there and listen to me riff on him because this is more about me than it is you. So well, it's you more know. about you than it is about the person you're riffing on. It just oh yeah. I mean, I, I I guess I just can't I can't help but every every opinion you have is is an approximation built on uh, a lack of information. So you're always you're always excluding a lot of gray area whenever you'd make a decision about anything and not you, but everybody. So I just feel like the need when anybody makes a point to make the counterpoint that there, there's always exceptions to their, to their particular opinion. I, I don't know. I mean, it's just, it's just, it's just sort of a neurotic dickish behavior. That's part of, part of my personality. <laughs> well, when I riff on somebody, it's not really personal. I'm just taking a little slice of what I've witnessed of them and then almost insulting uh, their behavior and the stereotype they represent. Yeah, I'm sure they have like a mixed history and they may be uh, contradictory in very cool ways that, you know, I, I don't see right off the bat. But like when Diane Keaton and Woody are sitting in the park and making fun of people, mm -hmm. oh, yeah. I, I, just, I just love that shit. I love to sit and just <laughs> stare at people wandering around and like just go, oh, look at that fucker there, you know. Uh, Will and I used to do this at Western quite a bit where we would uh, sit on that log ramp sculpture. It was kind of like uh -huh. a little, little uh, what do you call those? Little a real good art. No, well, yeah, real good art. But it's sort of like, a, what do you call them? Bleachers. They're like bleachers. Mm -hmm. And we would just sit there for like two or three hours in the spring and then we'd see somebody we know, and then we'd see people like, "Oh, look at that fucker there!" And so we'd give nickname to 
people that just really drove us nuts. Like there used to be this guy that delivered the mail on campus and he didn't wear a shirt and he wore these, we call them gladiator sandals. You know, they're like mm. these sandals that like had like leather bands all the way up to his knees. Yeah, sort and, of a females wear them more than men. Yeah, but it was really, it's like he was a total Russell Crowe and gladiator. And we just used to make fun of that fucker. I forget what we call them. And like, oh, there goes that guy, you know, and uh, putting thoughts into his head as he's like walking around and. I don't know. It, it, I love that stuff. I love I love just making fun of them. So they're making fun of, uh, uh, I don't know, some guy that looked like he was in the mob. And then the, the, he says, uh, oh, there's the winner of the Truman Capote lookalike competition. Do you remember that comment? Yeah. You know who that person was? Was it Truman Capote? Yeah, it was Truman Capote. <laughs> <laughs> I didn't realize that. I, actually, yeah. I don't know what Truman – whenever I think of Truman Capote, I think of Philip Seymour Hoffman's portrayal. Uh yeah, but it needs to be thinner and smaller. That would yeah, be yeah, you yeah. know because that's a really that was really an odd role for him because he's so rotund and and uh, so I guess I get that about him and uh, making fun of people in your particular uh, what's the right word uh, class or I don't know like I'm in a part of Seattle that is full of I'd say what's the right word pretentious overeducated assholes and of course i'm a pretentious overeducated asshole so there's nothing i like more than going out in public and just mocking everybody i see even because i'm mocking myself in a way you know i i, I do the exact same thing everybody else does and you wouldn't go uh, to white center and mark uh, and mock the people for starters that's racist and secondly it's not that much fun I, I, I don't know why. I just like... Well, because uh, you don't have any stories about these people. The people that are like you, you can poke fun at parts of yourself. Exactly. And I love uh, I love hipster hating. That's one of my favorite things. But again... It's, uh, it's, it's up, interesting that you hate bicyclists and like to bitch about them, but you don't bicycle yourself. Oh, uh, no. But that's not really... See, I can do that because... Is that I, like, racist? No, we're racist. <laughs> I, I don't think people who ride bicycles are, grew up on a different continent from us, so I'm going to say no. I'm going to say they're perfectly... I wonder. Yeah. If there might be some genetic differences that no, predispose people to bicycle, like some sort of yeah. mutation that makes your calf no muscles grow larger than the general population. No this way. This would be an interesting thesis. <laughs> well, and I don't hate... You know, when I meet a bicyclist person, personally, it's like, you know, there's a guy down the street. I really, he's a, I talk to him quite a bit, but he's like a pretty heavy duty bicyclist and he's a real nice mm-hmm. guy. And I, you know, get along with him great. But just bicyclists in, in general, the whole movement, uh, no pun intended, of, of bicyclists annoy the shit out of me in Seattle. Yeah. Look, man, I like you, but uh, you try to pass me on the right one, make him a turn, I'm going to fucking run right over you. And I would say when I read a, a news story, uh, the two people I have the least empathy towards when I read about an accident are mountain mm-hmm. climbers mm-hmm. and road bicyclists who mm. get clipped and 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 uh, knock sideways. I'm like, you know what? You just had that coming. You just so had that coming, <laughs> dude. I don't care how many fucking bike lanes you put in the city and how many, uh, you know, how much awareness you raise. Mm-hmm. Statistically, bicyclists are just going to get punted into. Uh, the next life by some Amazon delivery truck or uh, cement truck at some point, and that's just the way it's going to roll. So every time it happens, let's not be surprised and not, you know, uh, try to enact some sort of legislation 
that uh, will make us more aware. It's a dangerous activity. It's always going to be dangerous. Uh, that's the way it is. And you're risking your life by doing it. And if you have a family at home, and you should be extremely aware of the danger. And when you get killed, you should have a pretty good fucking life insurance policy because you knew exactly what you were doing. You know, I don't feel sorry for you one bit. I feel sorry for your family because you're kind of a prick, but I don't feel sorry for you. So, boy, you got you got the, all the alarms in my head going off here. I gotta I gotta make a counterpoint, but I'm gonna hold it. I'm gonna hold it back. Oh, really? Well, you were a I bicyclist respect. in Seattle, well, but I think one. I think it would be one. a good idea. Maybe put a right. dead man switch on your on your handlebar, so if somebody runs over you, it ignites some sort of IED. <laughs> so you take that fucking dr- car driver with you. That's a great idea. You're a bike rider now. You're a motorcycle driver. Yeah, yeah, boy. And tell you, I I ride like a fucking asshole. Well, I don't mind motorcyclists because yeah, it's dangerous, but you can fucking keep up, and I don't have to swerve around you. And you you have to stop at stoplights, and you have to stop at stop signs, and you have to use your turn signal. You can't become a pedestrian when convenient. You don't ride. No, your, I can't. I, I don't go on the sidewalk. Yeah, you you can't ride your motorbike up on the sidewalk and cruise through a crosswalk, you know, and then hop back on the street again. Every once in a while, I zip could, down the Burke Gilman Trail. I get the dirtiest looks. <laughs> fucking awesome. I had this fantasy once. Of uh, I used to hike Mount Si outside of town when I was a hiker, and it's the most congested, annoying uh, hike you could ever do in the Cascade Mountains. Uh, it's it's like a mall traffic going up and down. I think it's horrible. And I had this fantasy once of taking like a Kawasaki dirt bike out there and dressing like a clown. And putting a gigantic, like, blowhorn on it. And then just blowhorning and riding that fucker, like, up the trails and the switchbacks and watching all those, like, REI hikers just spill off to the side. And just and all the Cub Scouts? Yeah, see how long I could go until they got, uh, you know, the sheriff department out there. And I don't know. I'd have to have a ski You might be able to get up and down before the sheriff gets there. Did you get cell signal? You probably get cell signal, so it might be tough. You have to go and do then, some mountain trail that doesn't have cellular signal. And then I would scream when my horn wasn't going at the whole thing. Oh, you'd, you'd have to have like a, one of the electric horn that played a little clown tune while you're going Oh, perfect. Up. Yeah. Uh, but, you know, it's funny. I've actually seen that before. When I was uh, touring Hungary some years ago, uh, we were at, at some, you know, um, really beautiful old medieval castle. Uh, building on the side of some sort of you know hill hill lake and there was fog over the lake and there were swans in the water and these old stone wall and this stone pathway we were walking down it's beautiful quiet idyllic the three guys and i and then all of a sudden three guys on dirt bikes came motoring right down the stairs right past us on on motorcycles yeah (laughs) that'd be pretty fun yeah those are my eastern european brothers right there All right. So back to back to uh, Annie Hall. We sort of talked about sort of uh, with the Woody Allen relationship quirks, which this movie centers on. And uh, I guess I don't know if we were if we were doing like a typical comedy podcast talking about comedy, talking about Woody Allen's place in it. Uh, you know, I don't know I, I, enough comic history to. You know, everybody says Richard Pryor is sort of, you know, if without Richard Pryor, you wouldn't have modern comedy. You know, you wouldn't have. Uh, I guess Richard Pryor, ne- Richard Pryor never really spoke to me, but, but I guess I'm not really his audience. Well, I, I, you know, the thing is, is I, I guess what you saw, what Richard Pryor has percolated into comics today in such a way that you probably don't recognize it 
You know, it's like those old seminal blues musicians that uh, you don't really want to particularly want to go listen to. Uh, but you, without them, you wouldn't have modern music today. Mm. Uh, and the thing about comedy is it's very t- topical. And it's weird watching old acts, and I do it on occasion watching old comedy acts, and uh, sometimes they're just a little dated, and it's hard to appreciate it appropriately. Mm, If you're a comic and you appreciate delivery and timing and, uh, you know, how an act is crafted, all that stuff is, is really educational. But for like Monty Python, there's so much of that is topical humor that they throw in there. Oh, that, British topical, uh, yeah. That uh, there's no way you can get it unless you were British and grew up during that time, right? And so in the film here, Alvy makes a point that he isn't really a uh, uh, political comedian, although he does make an Eisenhower crack, which is pretty funny. Mm-hmm. <laughs> he sure does. And uh, so, but so I guess his his comedy is maybe a little bit more timeless in the fact that uh, you know he he talks about. Uh, I guess it's a self-deprecating humor. I'm trying to think of a comedian that no, maybe it's just best relationship repli- humor. It's pretty much yeah. What I'm trying. I'm trying to think of a comedian that maybe is close to Woody, uh, as far as maybe his what he what he what he uh, talks about or his. Well, you, you wouldn't know. call Louis C.K. Yeah, Louis C.K. But yeah, his style is completely different. But he definitely fits that. Well, he's got know. a little bit more of the prior in him. It's sort of like if you took Pryor and Woody Allen and melded them together with one of those transporters from the Fly movie. Right. Yeah. Well, he makes Woody just makes like his insecurities hilarious, and uh, I don't really know. I mean, that's kind of what all comics do, but for whatever reason, uh, I think it's a lot of delivery and, like you were saying, his speech pattern. Without that. And he, he wouldn't, he wouldn't, it's like his whole package, the way he looks, you know, his kind of, his, his posture. Uh, and I don't have any, you know, I can't paraphrase any of his jokes in the movie, although there's a ton of them. Um, although, you know, just that, like he has one joke that I use on Rose all the time, like when we're parking. Oh, oh and, I use and, that one too, man. Oh, do you? Yeah. Whenever, oh, yeah. like. I, 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 whenever I ridicule, I won't say anything about a parking job and we get out and I was like, okay, this is fine. We can walk to the curb from here. You know, I know. I say that too. I think every, every white guy says that. (laughs) (laughs) That's a hilarious Uh, joke. I wonder if he got it from somewhere else. Uh, I don't know, but it's just, it cracks me up every time I like, and I use it and you know, it's not funny to anybody but me. Hold it. Does your dad use it? No. Uh, He never come into the city. You kidding me? The city to them is like, uh, it's like hostile territory. They have to, you know, if they're going to go into the city, they got to find one of those parking garages that you pay like thirty dollars a day to park in. And I mean, no when you talk parking. about the city, you're talking about Seattle. Yeah, right. right. Anywhere <laughs> with a parallel parking situation. Is, oh uh, God, how about how about when uh, Alvy rents the car in California near the end of the movie? And he's oh, trying to drive hilarious. around that a giant so Lincoln funny. convertible. That has got to be that has got to be tough when you never drive and then go rent a car. It must be just it must be a terrible experience, especially in California. Could you imagine living in New York, never driving for like ten years, and then going to California having to fucking rent a car? I'd get sick to my stomach too just thinking about having to do that. I mean, having to be able to go around at eighty miles an hour on the freeways when it's not stop and go traffic would be tough. 
It's probably like you and me getting into the UK jet lagged and getting a car and having to drive on the left hand side of the road. That's probably probably the equivalent, you know. Because I I think it it would be very similar, and that's just that's white knuckle driving right there. uh, Yeah, because you're thinking about it, flying in. You know, you're making your approach into wherever you know we flew into, and and you're like, oh man, I'm gonna have to fucking rent that car. I gotta start thinking on the left. And the thing about driving on the left is it's not natural. It's not yeah. like it's not like you make a some kind of left right brain switch like I was hoping and it just oh, you know, it's okay, this is all flowing really well. You have to think about fucking everything. You have to think about yeah, yeah. you know, what gear you're going into, like, you know, every intersection's a maze. It's like a rat maze you got to negotiate. And uh, yeah, all, you know, the, all everybody- the automatic thinking that you have when you drive, just you have to throw it all out the window. It's not; it's worse than that. You don't just have to throw it out the window; you have to actively ignore it because it oh, keeps telling you to do yeah. different things. Yeah, like every intersection, I'm like, okay, which way do I look? That was the other one. Like, which way do I look? I was like, oh, I'm look. Oh man, I almost got ran over just being a pedestrian looking the wrong way. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. That's a common one. That box. happened to me in London. Like I was about to cross the street, and I'm looking to my left, yeah, you know. Uh, and then all of a sudden, like I feel this whoosh of air, and my head's like literally like a half a foot away from a giant double decker bus. There's got to be so many tourists killed just doing the exact same. Like looking to their left and just walking out and just getting creamed by a bus. Yeah. It must happen all the time. So oh, we, we had a little taste of that. I'm guessing, you know, a little bit of that just. Not driving, driving business. Yeah. Um, oh, what else are we going to talk about? Do you have any? Do you have any drops? Do you have any good drops other than the one we heard? No, no, I didn't take. I didn't take any drops from the. Film. Oh, I do Sorry, like I that. Was a little tight on time. I do like that. Where he, <laughs> he's talking about that uh, couple, and it's it's hilarious because that's his impression of that couple. You know that uh, when they're sitting in the park, that part. No, that beginning part where he's talking about uh, relationships and getting each other off and there's that uh i don't know uh, that bourgeois couple that he goes up and he confronts about oh you know, the vapid oh, I, couple yeah right. mm-hmm. <laughs> and i was like oh man i have that thought about half the people i see you know especially the people that uh fit that mold like, oh, well yeah. that, you know that gets me onto an interesting topic is and it's sort of uh, a topic that's never answered by the film it has to do with the different mindsets sets of Annie and Alfie. Um, is Annie stupid? I mean, there's sort of a, there's sort of a Annie sort of played that way a little bit that she's a little ditzy, right? A little flighty, flaky, and she doesn't. Um, she's not the worse off for it. But you wonder about is this a good relationship for Alfie to be in? I mean, why is he? Why is Alvy attracted to Annie? It does seem like a little bit outside of his type. Not that uh, he has any particular type. He just likes women, and he's has a, has a high sex drive. But is she sort of a a ditz? Well, it comes down. Well, like I guess the one of the fundamental cruxes of their relationship arc is uh, the fact that that he views her as sort of his intellect, like an intellectual. Uh, midget a bit and he doesn't but necessarily is, is, isn't she well compared to him well you don't know his background you assume he's college educated uh well-read all that good stuff uh and she's maybe not and you know they have that adult education conversation and stuff and i've never really dated 
a woman that I guess didn't graduate from college or wasn't graduating from college and uh, that I had maybe a lower opinion of from kind of an intellectual standpoint. So, but he definitely has an issue with it. And it comes up in, obviously, uh, he mocks her, but not directly. And then he feels bad about it because, you know, it's 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 uh, causing a rift. And uh, I don't know. What was the well, topic? I think what, was the, I, what was the question? I, which is, <laughs> has to do with the intellectual mindset of Annie and Alvy. As I, as I get older, I realize I really have more in common with Annie's mindset that I'm not really inclined to get to have a great understanding of the great thinkers of antiquity and near history. I'm not well read. I am not particularly um, uh, academically or disciplined in my thoughts. I tend to be a little more flighty and uh, just sort of go with my emotions most of the time. Just as Annie says, she sort of plays it by ear. I guess I just don't understand why... The movie spends a lot of time on these intellectual mindsets where Annie's a little more, I mean, I just said the word flighty again, but she's just a little more free form and not really interested in discipline. And, uh, I mean, just look at the movies. They go and see documentaries about the Holocaust over and yeah. over again. Yeah. And, uh, and, uh, uh, Alvy's obsessed with death. I mean, he says it. He describes himself that way several times, and he, he and there's like a couple of books at the beginning of the relationship where you see him at a bookstore. Uh, there was books on the topic of death that he buys for Annie, and when they're splitting up uh, for the final time in the movie, you can tell that uh, she's giving those books back to Alvy, and you can see they had never been cracked. <laughs> I didn't catch that. They were the, the, it was a paperback, and the spine wasn't bent at all. They were brand oh, new. She, yeah. she never yeah. read it, and she said when she gave them back to him that that's a huge weight off my back because you felt like, <laughs> oh, he wanted me to read these, but I never got around to it. Right. And it's like when somebody gives you a book, you rarely read it. They said, you got to read this motherfucker. Like somebody gave me in- Infinite Jest, that Wallace oh. book, a long time All ago. Right. Actually, I think I finally just gave it to the, uh, to the uh, Goodwill. Because you know, <laughs> it was so thick, and I read the first part of it. It was about some well-to-do guy and it's like i just don't want to read some story about some upper crust gentleman i don't know a lot of people said it's a great book but just i wasn't really interested in it and i don't know what point i'm getting at la di da well no okay let let me see if i can dissect what you're getting at i think with books and reading books and you say you're you don't read a lot but uh, you appreciate what you do read and, you know, I, I think with the deal with books and as a writer, I can kind of understand the whole dilemma of giving books to people. Like my friend Emma and I have given each other probably maybe half a dozen books that go unread on both sides. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and, you know, I think what it is is like you have a lot in common with somebody and you have maybe a conversation and you're taking the conversation way more seriously than they are or you're appreciating the subject matter way more than they are because conversations are like, okay, this part of the conversation is about me and then this one's about you. And, you know, conversations, we always like talking about ourselves more than we like hearing from the other person, i.e. our podcast. So, <laughs> you know, there's part of that. But with, there's so many books and so many topics out there that 
you can really choose what you find more most interesting and kind of glom onto it. Like I'm endlessly fascinated with, uh, you know, our dying earth and I read science fiction. I read, uh, you know, books about, you know, old greenhouse effects from, or greenhouse driven extinctions and paleontology. I just love that. Just, like I love like human society, how shitty human societies are to each other. I just love reading about the human animal and how uh, we're not important and we're just going to fall into line like the dinosaurs and the woolly mammoth. And we're just, you know, a speed bump in the history of uh, Earth's biology and, you know, that kind of thing. That's what drives me. But I can't just give a book to somebody and expect them just to get into my world and see into my world. Because for starters, books are a huge investment of time. And that's one of the reasons I give my friends and family my novels and say, don't feel like you have to tell me what you think. I don't care. If you read it, then come back to me and say, yeah, I liked it. If you don't, I'm never going to ask you. I'm not going to ask you how my book was because, you know, most most likely nobody you won't re- have read it hell my wife doesn't read my novels all the way through so you know it's not personal but i think that's part of it and so you're trying to claw each other's you know claw into somebody else's world and then they give you sort of this book and you're like no i I can't do it i'm not in your world enough to to appreciate this or uh ride along with you and uh, that's the way it is so it's a lot to ask of somebody and so you know when you're trying to give a significant other a book uh, it's, it's sort of a, I don't know. It's, it's, it's kind of an odd interchange, I would say. Well, the weird thing, I guess, about it is that this relation between Alvy and Annie is not about the intellectual life of either of them. It's strictly emotional. I mean, that's how I've always felt relationships are. I mean, do you know any relationships where the two people have all the same interests and read all the same books? Is there such a thing? Uh, not, I would say, like, when it comes to absorbing media, no. Uh, you know, most of the time, I think, like, I always hated sort of uh, when you're dating, feeling like you need, like, what uh, what you have in common is music, books, and movies, because those are really superficial. And you can have a... a really fruitful relationship if you like opposite music opposite books and opposite movies and that's the case with me and rose like she likes you know sort of singer songwriter kind of stuff i like heavy metal and ambient techno you know those are just two different uh, that has nothing to do with our personalities or anything uh for movies you know i kind of like weird sci-fi abstract stuff uh, not her not so much books she reads a lot of british mysteries i read a ton of science fiction those don't really have anything to do with the person they're just kind of what you like they don't form a worldview so much uh, they're kind of a pastime so i don't think that stuff's that important it never has been and when you're younger it seems like it's a lot more important than it is because you don't have a lot of character to build off of to sort of offer somebody so what do you have is things in common like that you know 
Well, I mean, certainly your reading influences your opinion. You were just talking about your opinion of the dying earth, and certainly science fiction informs that aspect of your personality. So it does. Yeah, but it's it just kind of complements my worrisome attitude that would be there regardless it doesn't it's not it's not enhancing it it's just it's a it's like a, a accompanying it uh, you know i'm a worrier uh i'm a pessimist uh, that would be there regardless i think if i was uh is rose know, a pessimist no not as much as me uh although uh she is uh what's the right word much more of a misanthrope than me so it's a little odd i don't know what does a misanthrope mean you're dissatisfied with society I would say, no, she's more of an introvert. She's way more introverted than me. Oh, I see. Yeah. Oh, interesting. Anyway, but I I don't know. So it's almost as if the Alvy-Annie relationship is somewhat juvenile. It seems really juvenile, actually, now that I think about it. Uh, I mean, I guess it is. I guess this is the thing that's that's hard about this movie is there's, there's nothing. There's no really clear answers here anywhere i mean it's a comedy it's and as some podcasts talking about movies have said comedies are the worst type of movies to talk about they're almost impossible to yeah they're hard and they they don't have any answers it's more about feelings about your life with you're already confused about and you're not gonna nothing in this movie clarifies anything for me it just points out how much of a mess all my opinions of life are yeah, that I don't understand how relationships work, or why you're with somebody, or why you choose to love somebody and not love somebody else. It's it's a mystery to me to this day, and and will be, I'm sure, to my grave. And I guess this movie doesn't have answers. It just, it just, uh, I don't know. I don't know what. I don't know what. I enjoyed this movie, but I don't know why. Other than it was <laughs> well, funny. it's fucking hilarious. I mean, it's just yeah. you know, there's and it's just sort so of much... sad at the end. I really wish they'd work it out, and I guess they didn't. So, uh, we're getting up on the hour. Uh, yeah, let's hit the hit? review. Ebert reviewed this movie. Back on January 1st, 1977, I'm not sure if it was actually January 1st or somebody just didn't have their database updated properly, he gave it uh, three and a half stars, which means it's a pretty good movie. Um, And I think in this case, in this comedy where, in reviewing comedies being the hardest type of uh, movies to review, I think maybe more now than ever we need the guiding hand of Ebert. And I think in a sense he does guide us a little bit here. Um, he talks about Woody Allen in a way that I don't think either of us can really understand Woody Allen. He's talking from the sense of the comedian Woody Allen, which he grew up on and knew before he became more of a serious, introspective uh, character, which was more like himself. And I think this movie shows the transition of that. And so it's interesting, the mindset of the time where Woody Allen's more of a stand-up comedian and less about a weird sort of serious caricature of himself. You know what I'm saying? Yeah. Ebert, well, Ebert goes on to talk about that here in this review. It's kind of where... That, oh, sorry. No, I was oh. going to say it's kind of where stand-up comics shine, where they play like, I guess, just slightly shifted shadows of mm-hmm. who they really are in life. Um, He says that the audience is familiar with the Woody character. And this says he's talking about the Woody Allen's 
comedic character, an over-anxious, uh, underachieving intellectual uh, who uh, has inept uh, social abilities. And he says that um, this is a fully developed comic character in the tradition of Chaplin's The Tramp or uh, W.C. Field's Drunk. And uh, he goes on to say that uh, it, this is a projection of the real Woody Allen, but that beneath the comic character is a certain amount of painful truth. In the, in the same way that W.C. Fields' drunk was really a drunk, because W.C. Fields was a drunk, um, which we're not terribly familiar with, but I think we are in passing. Although, just an anecdote, I did mm-hmm. attend a wedding where I sat next to W.C. Fields' grandson, and uh, oh. was he, he was drunk? pretty hilarious and a little drunk. So. <laughs> did he have a big red nose? <laughs> no. <laughs> Uh, he says Annie Hall is the closest that Woody Allen has come to dealing with real material. Um, he says it's not exactly an autobiography, but we get the notion at times that scenes in this movie have been played before. And I think Woody Allen, in a way, sort of cops to that at the end of the film, where you see parts of the movie being played out again in rehearsals of a play. Oh, yeah, that that's Alby's right. writing. So I think in a way, he's sort of nodding to the audience going, yeah, it's pretty much... There's a bunch of this is a a series of uh, rewrites of actual uh, incidents I've had in my life with relationships. So you wonder if somebody actually did say his lovemaking was Kafkaesque to admit <laughs> sometime. Although I had a student when I was in grad school write in a student uh, survey that Matt is to physics as etch a sketches to art. So I, I, that one's plagued me to this day. I still I, I keep thinking you can do some pretty amazing things with etch sketches. That's all I'm saying. So anyway, go ahead. Yeah. That's sort of that's sort of a mean comment, but yet they put some work into it, so you can't. Yeah, be they did. About I had to give them credit where credit was due. <laughs> Although I probably I wonder them, how when anyway. I, when I TA'd, I used to like to put uh, uh, children's stickers on the uh, people who got perfect scores on their uh, quizzes. <laughs> I had I had this huge stack of uh, Shaq stickers. It was like pictures of Shaq dunking a ball, and I put them on there when they got them all right. I don't know why I did that, but it cracked me up. I doubt it cracked awesome. them up too much, though. Yeah. Uh, <clears throat> he says that, obviously... Alvy Singer being a representation of Woody Allen has some faults. And he says that um, one of the, the, the main point of his faults is that he's not a victim of forces beyond his control, but they're authors. So he's sort of making life hard on himself, which is the way he, he is. The character of right. Alvy is. Yeah. Um, uh, to uh, describe Alvy's faults, he says he falls in love too easily. Uh, to girls that are who are right for him in little ways, but in, incompatible in the big ones. And that's kind of what we were talking about earlier with uh, sort of this preoccupation with books and, uh, you know, literature, movies, education, those kind of things. Yeah, I guess the thing is, I don't, I still don't understand what makes people compatible with each other. I, I couldn't even describe what the big ones are if somebody asked me to make uh, a list of them. It's a combination of attract, attraction and I say commitment, and commitment is sort of a word that gets thrown around uh, carelessly. But at least in my experience, it's just investment. It's uh, um, you know nothing's perfect, and you have to work at things to get rewards. 
And I think a lot of people have some kind of preconceived notion that relationships should just fall into place beautifully and you shouldn't have any friction. And uh, if it's right, you know, you'll know it. And I don't, man, maybe, maybe there's some, you know, the quote unquote soulmates, which I don't ever believe in. Uh, But man, shit takes work. And if you aren't willing to accommodate the low points, then you can't really, uh, I don't know, it, it just takes time and investment. And, you know, that gets you, I guess, onto another playing field that you don't necessarily experience when you're kind of in that honeymoon phase. Um, yeah, if you're not willing to work through the, the low times, you'll never make it beyond a year or two. Well, yeah, and to me, it's like kind of when it's working is is when you can occupy the same space and not really say a lot to each other, you know, but still, you know, have that level of comfort that that it would be extremely awkward in a honeymoon phase, where it's like, oh, you know, I should we should be doing something, we should be out, you know, whatever. Uh, but it's just sort of a, I don't know. And that takes work, and uh, it doesn't seem like the Woody character in this film is up to it, is up to that, you know, dealing with the low points for further gains, the long-term investment. Yeah, it's interesting. I guess I'm just more confused when I try to think about this movie seriously. It just just (laughs) confuses me as when I try to think about relationships seriously. I don't know what's going on, and I just got to throw up my hands. Yeah, well, a lot of it's It's really. I mean, that's really all I got to say about the review. I mean, he does okay. go on to say that this shows a growth of Woody Allen as a director and blah, 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 blah. And it's, he likes the, the change and he's happy about it. Where he's relying less on slapstick and more on uh, um, insight into his own personality. Yeah, so that's I why I didn't right. want to do like Sleeper Bananas or mm-hmm. one of those films. Cause it yeah, is, that's, a good, that's a good point. He's more just going strictly for laughs. Yeah. This is a, yeah, this exactly. has a deeper meaning to it, even though. It's not maybe as clear. Right, right. Well, there you go. All right. Well, I don't know if we got anything else on uh, old Annie Hall. It's uh, probably my favorite Woody Allen film that he's in. I don't think he's in a lot of them these days. Uh, mm, he's getting pretty old. Yeah, yeah. So um, he had a thing for Scarlett Johansson. Man, he was throwing her in like every movie he made there for about five years. Mm. Uh, so his muse. Uh, did you see Match Point, which is a really – uncharacteristic Woody Allen movie. It's not even funny at all. But, it's like uh, a murder mystery, right? Yeah, it's good, though. No, I never saw it's, it. It kind of set him... It kind of gave him more thriller cred and uh, really worked. It was a good movie. Uh, so next week, we're going to... Well, next week is my uh, wild card pick, and so I decided to make yeah. a wild pick. Uh, we're going to be doing uh, the Sylvester... 80s Sylvester Stallone 80s classic over the top now why would I pick a movie that uh has a what it was what is the rating on uh Rotten Tomatoes 36 percent um I was listening to it I really was I didn't know what I wanted to do for my wild card and I had thrown all sorts of ideas around and uh, I was listening to a uh interview this week with Frank Stallone and I was thinking about uh I was sort of thinking he's about, not in uh, that's Sylvester he's not Stallone, in this but then I was thinking yeah. about Sylvester Stallone and all the movies this guy this guy has been in a ton of movies I don't think we've ever had a Stallone movie in uh, no. in our entire uh, oeuvre so far and Rocky's just not right for the wild card pick because that's supposed to be yeah. a good movie yeah. so um, 
And another thing happened last week is there's a, a really good movie podcast that I doubt you ever listened to, but it was strangely beloved in the in the movie podcast circles called uh, Yeah, It's That Bad. I don't know if you ever listened oh, to no. it. Oh, uh-uh. no. Uh, but basically what these guys did is it was three guys that had a wonderful rapport with each other, and uh, the guy who edited it had this sort of frenetic editing pace where he'd remove all silences from from the podcast. Oh, so wow. It was like a machine yeah. gun. And um, they basically what they would do is they just watch movies that were rotten on Rotten Tomatoes. Okay. And they talk about them, say, are these really bad movies or do they have redeeming qualities? And uh. Uh, they, they'd also do good movies too and they they change the title of their podcast to Yeah, It's That Good. Okay. And it was sort of fun going back and, and, and they would look at old movies and, and sort of point out the good parts of them. And they also had a policy where they never did comedies because the comedies oh. were too hard to talk about. Yeah. I think their excuse was that comedy is too subjective. That's true. And uh, so I've always sort of wanted to see over the top and it's my wild card. <laughs> so I could take whatever flight of fancy I deem I wish to. Yeah. And so uh, when we were, I just, just I just went with it. I just uh, Henry got Lottie dot it. This one right up to the top of the choice. Henry Rollins has a big whole thing on over the top. Uh, uh-huh. Yeah, he he has a whole bit in one of his talking, you know, deals which he has a gazillion hours worth of. But uh, he devoted to over the top and um, you know uh, the bizarre idea that you will take a competition that nobody nobody even gives a rip about there's no sort of uh, uh it's not even it's not televised it's really like let's take arm wrestling and make a whole fucking movie around it and so he's like a truck driver i think he's like a truck driver and then he has like an estranged son and he has to what show his estranged son that he's worth something by arm wrestling it just it's like the it's most, something like that yeah it's the most silly premise almost high concept premise uh, and it's like some weird dramatic film. So I, I think it'll be interesting, and I, I'm curious to see it. I've never watched it. so. Uh, but I guess the scenes where he's like, you know, the he, there's probably his uh, Dolph Lundgren arm wrestling uh, nemesis in the film. But I guess the part where, where he's like screaming and, he you know, he has that facial tick where his lip sags I, I guess that's just fucking comedy gold so I, i'm looking forward to that i don't know that it's fun sometimes to watch bad movies and usually you end up just happening across them on usa when you're fucking got nothing to do on a thursday night and you'll watch like half of them so in a way i think it's good to watch bad movies sometimes in a way in a contrast plus i think it'll be easy to talk about yeah it'll be easy yeah, exactly <laughs> so uh, uh talking about yeah it's that bad um they they stopped podcasting all of a sudden. They came on with a cryptic message that they said events in their lives have caused them to have to stop doing the podcast. Like something happened. Oh. And then they erased all their podcasts off the internet. What? And uh wow. yeah, they get into they some dis- trouble. They disappeared under mysterious circumstances. And okay. uh so this is a little bit of a tribute to uh Oh. A great podcast. Yeah, it's that bad. Mystery. And, uh, I wish I could ask, tell people to go back and listen to them, but uh, they don't exist any longer. Okay, until next week. I, I forgot my mantra. 